Hopefully you were able to get outside yesterday for a little bit. It was a beautiful day. And uh, yes, my face is a little red. Not that it's warm up here, but uh, I was outside for 45 minutes at Max's, Max's graduation party, and this is what happened. It's, it's amazing. So thankfully I put my hat on <laughs> after that, but uh, um, hopefully you enjoyed your day yesterday and Mother's Day. Um, mothers, there is a gift for you, a couple of things. One, we have, of course, our traditional uh, traditional Dairy Queen coupon for a free blizzard. So make sure to grab one. And then there's also a little basket back there with some butterfly pins. Please help yourself to one of those as well, too, as a gift from one of our, our members to you. And so please, if you would, take one of those. One of my favorite quotes about being a mom comes from John Piper, the author and, and pastor. And he was doing a panel at one point about the inerrancy of Scripture, why he believed the Bible was true. And somebody asked him and said, why, at your very core, do you believe that you can trust the Bible? And he looked at the interviewer straight in the face and he says, because my mom said so. I think that's a wonderful picture of the impact that mothers can have in the lives of their children and the lives of those around them, um, the way that we can teach and instruct about the Word of God. So thankful for our mothers this morning. Let's pray. We'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. And as we've already sung, all we have is Christ. Or we would have nothing in this life. Though we would have maybe everything material-wise, we would have everything we need to live, yet without Christ, we would still be lost. Lord, help us to realize that. Help us to live with an eye to the eternal. Help us to live with an eye to what really matters, and it's Christ. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, may we be challenged and encouraged. Lord, may we be warned about the fact that if we deny you, you will deny us. Lord, help us now as we come to your word. Teach us and instruct us by your spirit through your word. We pray in his, your son's name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Perhaps one of the most well-known missionaries in our circles, a missionary who gave his life for Christ, is the missionary Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, along with several other men, uh, were missionaries to the uh, Indians in Ecuador. And they were seeking to reach these people with the gospel. They hardly spoke English, if that. They really didn't have any interaction with those in the outside world. And so they built a relationship. They flew their plane. They brought gifts and sought to build a relationship with these Indians in Ecuador. But yet, one time, 
Something must have happened, and we're still not quite sure exactly what happened and led to this confrontation. But these Ecuadorian Indians turned on these missionaries and ended up killing them. Jim Elliott and his co-workers were martyrs for the cause of Christ. They gave everything they had to advance the gospel. Yes, they left home, which was difficult. Yes, they took their families with them, which I'm sure on Mother's Day, uh, their mothers, their wives had to adjust, and that was a sacrifice. They gave of their time and energy, and their sole effort was to take the gospel to these Ecuadorian Indians. They gave their lives because they literally gave their lives. They gave their lives for the cause of Christ, not just the activity of their life, but their whole life, their, their whole being. They died to see the gospel go forth. One of his most famous quotes is this, and you probably are familiar with it. He says in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life. All of us, apart from Elijah and Enoch, will taste death. We will die. You cannot keep your life, no matter how many times you may go to the doctor, no matter how many supplements and vitamins and gross smoothies you drink or how much dirt you rub on your hands, no matter how, pigs, how many pigs you wrestle, you will eventually lose your life. You cannot keep it. But Jim Elliot says, you're not a fool if you give that which you can't keep. Hey, you're going to lose it someday anyways. What's the deal if you give it up now or in 20 years from now? And not only that we give it, but that we receive something that we cannot lose. That's a good investment right there. That's a very good investment right there. This idea of giving what we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose, comes from this passage. In his journals, he even quotes part of these verses from a different gospel, but this same passage. Jesus is talking to the crowds. And this is following right after his discussion with Peter and the disciples, right? Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And different gospels have different other things added in there, but in Mark's account, it's the simple statement, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. And Jesus goes on teaching, and he, he teaches how he's going to give his life, and he's going to suffer. That is what he's called to. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Let me rebuke you, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He corrects his thinking. I had to do that this week with Somebody, a church member, they sent me a picture of an off-brand Pop-Tart and said, these are the best. And my response was, get behind me, Satan. That was said in jest, of course. The idea of correcting Jesus and saying, no, that's not how it works, Jesus. That's, that's wrong. And Jesus corrects Peter. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. He turns to the crowd and he brings them in into the discussion. He calls them over, it says in verse 34, and calling the crowd, 
And he starts to speak to them with the disciples. So these are the expanded disciples, the followers of Jesus that weren't the specific 12 disciples, the greater crowd that followed him. And he starts to discuss and he talks about what it means to follow after him, what it means to be a disciple. And this is our big idea. He tells them that if you're going to follow after me, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Our big idea this morning is this, is that the call of being a disciple of Jesus Christ comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. What is the cost? Is it high? Yes, it is. There are conditions and consequences of following after Jesus, but is it worth it? Yes, it is. The call of Christ to follow him is one of forgetting self and setting our minds wholly on Christ. So let's look this morning at the conditions of being a disciple of Christ and the consequences of discipleship, of being a disciple of Christ. So first point here in verse 34, these, uh, this is the condition of discipleship, what it involves. Jesus says, or Mark says, and Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm sure this is a familiar verse to many of you. This is one of the more well-known verses from the Gospels. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The different Gospels add in different minutia here of Jesus' conversation. Uh, some add the word daily after take up his cross daily. It's the idea of a, a thing you must do every day. But this statement is bold. But in the familiarity with it, we cannot miss the point. What are the conditions of being a disciple of Jesus? And Jesus wants to get this clear to his own disciples and the crowd. He says, if anyone would come after me. So there's four aspects here to this statement. What is the first condition? Well, it's for anyone. It's open to anyone. Everyone qualifies if they want to, to be a disciple of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, it's not if you have enough money, if you're a Jew, if your last name is da 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 da, da if you have this level of education, if you're in this occupation. No, he says if anyone, the offer of being a disciple is for anyone. Think of the people in that crowd. More than likely, these were simple people, fishermen, merchants, People, everyday people, these were not, in a sense, you could say the cream of the crop. It's not an offense to them. It's just who they were. And Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, in the mind of the Jew in the first century, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they were up there. They were special. They were, in a sense, set apart. But Jesus says, no, anyone can follow after me. If anyone would come after me. Your past does not negate your future. Your past actions do not disqualify you from future service. You don't need to have money, position, power, the right family name. Anyone can follow Christ. You know what the amazing thing is? We're all not only the offers there, but we're all invited to follow after Christ. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, secondly, 
The condition of being a disciple of Christ involves denying self. The next phrase is, let him deny himself. Everyone is welcome to follow Christ. They're all invited, but everyone must deny themselves. And this is a call to total submission. Total submission to Christ. This word himself is, is a reflexive pronoun. It means the entire being. All that you are, you're to deny all that you are. It's the idea of you're, in a sense, changing your identity. You're going into the witness protection program, and you are now identified as Jesus Christ. You're denying yourself. You're forgetting yourself. And this denying is more than just giving up of creature comforts, right? We, we read that and we think deny self. Well, well, I'm not going to have that last piece of pie. Jesus, I'm denying myself. Okay, that's part of it, but that's, that's far down the line. <laughs> it's not just the idea of self-discipline or keeping uh, or giving up things in your life, but this is a total and complete removal of self as the deciding factor in your life. Think of that. It's the complete and total removal of yourself as the deciding factor in your life. Because how many things do we do and the reason for our motivation or action is what we like? Right? Well, I like this. I like that. I want this. I want that. Denying yourself to follow Jesus is the complete removal of that and saying, Jesus, what do you want for me? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What do you call me to? One author says this, to follow Jesus means more than just identifying yourself as a Christ follower. It means renouncing self and journeying with him even to death. To deny oneself does not mean to live a life of self-denial or self-discipline. It is to renounce your claim to yourself, your desires, ambitions, personal goals, and submit to Christ as his slave. It is the denial of autonomy and self-sufficiency. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me. I'm very self-sufficient, very self-sufficient. Ever since the days that my mom would go and work in her classroom and she left me home with a package of like chicken patties from the Swans Man and ham and turkey in the drawer, and the TV remote, man, I was self-sufficient. I could get by just fine. <laughs> and I was that way through college. And then you get married and you realize as a man, you cannot just be self-sufficient. <laughs> you have a wife you need to take care of. And then if the Lord blesses with children, you have children. I used to be able to eat a whole Jack's pizza by myself. Now I have to share it. And Ezra's starting to eat too much, right? <laughs> We are very, very good at being self-sufficient and caring for ourselves and being autonomous, worrying about us, and, and we are the deciding factor. But here, Jesus is saying, no, you must deny yourself. You give up that right, and you are now identifying, in a sense, as Jesus, saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live my life? What are you calling me to? That doesn't mean that we're mindless robots by any means. God uses our desires and our skills and our abilities and our passions to serve him. But our ultimate purpose is not to promote ourselves, but to promote him. Deny ourselves. The third point here is that we must take up his cross. Some of the gospel writers add daily. Take up his cross daily. How often have you heard this phrase? Well, this is my cross to bear. 
And usually it's because you have an annoying neighbor, right? <laughs> this is just my cross to bear. We joke about it sometimes with our spouses. Husbands, you don't pick up your socks. Wives, it's just my cross to bear. We mean it in a joking, frivolous sense. But often this idea of taking up our cross, we apply it to minor annoyances or difficulties in life. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You have to remember when Jesus says this, taking up his cross, the cross was not a piece of jewelry you wore. The cross to the individual in the first century was humiliating. It was painful. It was excruciating. It was the worst possible way you could die. It was an image of being laid bare to the world. For when people were hung on the cross, more than likely, they were naked. They were hung in the hot sun. They were pierced with nails through their wrists, through their ankles. People would walk by. People would throw things at the people hanging on a cross. There you were, and it would often take several days for an individual to die on a cross. It was abject humiliation. Not only was it we're going to put you to death, but we're going to make you feel every second of it, both physically, emotionally, mentally. The call to take up your cross is not to deal with somebody who's annoying. The image of taking up your cross is saying, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to go to the death for you. It's what Jim Elliott and those other men did. They took up their cross. They literally died for the cause of Christ. Another author said this, similarly, to take up your cross does not mean to accept a life of hardship, as the idiom is sometimes used today. It means to subject oneself to excruciating and shameful execution by crucifixion. Of course, this will not mean all actual martyrdom for us all, but a willingness to renounce all for Christ. And Luke adds the metaphorical sense of the word daily to Mark's taking up our cross. We are saying we are willing to subject ourselves to the excruciating and shameful execution by crucifixion, if not that, even the ridicule, the scorn, the persecution that is associated with it. Take up his cross. It's a call to die. Called to die. It's what Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One preacher said this about Paul. He would have been the most annoying inmate if you were a jailer. Because he's always rejoicing. And then you beat him and he says, praise the Lord, I'm, I'm knowing what it is to be like Christ. Well, you can't preach the gospel. Ah, sorry, I'm going to. Well, we're going to kill you. Great. Then dying is gain. Oh, I can't win with this guy, right? A disciple of Jesus Christ is like that. No matter what happens, our call is the same. Denying ourselves, taking up that cross, identifying with Jesus, saying, Jesus, whatever you have for me, I accept. Then lastly, follow me. The condition of being a disciple of Jesus is that we follow Jesus, him. He says that in the first phrase, if anyone would come after me, 
follow me. Jesus is the one we are following. The call of discipleship is not a general call of asceticism, of living like a monk. It's not a call of just self-discipline for the sake of self-discipline. It's not a stoic mindset. No, it is a following of an individual, a person. We follow Jesus. It's him. He is the aim. Jesus, the one who is truly man and truly God. And even though there are people in our lives who encourage us, godly men and women who help us live for Christ, and, and, and as Paul says, follow me, but we follow them because they are following Christ. Jesus is the aim. He is the goal. It is him and him alone. We love what he loves. We are to speak like he speaks. We are to set his will as our own. The conditions of being a disciple of Jesus Christ are denying self, accepting death, setting our lives on Christ, and following after him. What are the consequences then? That's what Jesus explains in verses 35 through the beginning of chapter 9. So the consequences, what are the results? Those are the conditions. What are, what are the results here? He says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does a man, if he profit, or what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? There's really two main ideas here in this section. It's verses 35 through 37, the idea of saving and losing, a profit and gain. And then verses 38 through chapter 9, verse 1. The idea of shame and recognition. So gain and loss. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. This is the idea of, of trying to keep your life. Of trying to, to keep it, to save it. You will lose it. Ultimately, you cannot be immortal in a material sense. Yes, our souls and our spirits are immortal, but our physical bodies, we will die. We will die. And Jesus says, if you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you try and live and protect your life and live for yourself, you're ultimately going to lose your life at the end. But if you give of your life for the sake of Christ and his gospel, you will save it. There is salvation in Christ. And I think it's interesting. What uh, do we set it on? Or what do we lose it for? So he says, for my sake, so Jesus' sake, for the person of Jesus, but also his teaching. He says, and the gospels, for my sake and the gospels, for his, the man and the mission. <laughs> it's the man and the mission. It's not only for Jesus, but what he calls us to of sharing the gospel. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He lays out this scenario and these questions. So what does it profit a man? What gain is it if he has the entire world? And it's talking about everything. It's position, power, authority. If you are literally king of the world, right? King of the world. If you could gain all of that power, what is the ultimate gain? You still forfeit your soul forfeit his soul. And he asks this question, for what can a man give in return for his soul? 
There's a couple ways that you can take that statement. A couple ways that you can take that statement. First off, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The first way to take it is the price of a man's soul. What's the cost? Right? It's priceless. You ever hear that phrase about a painting or something? You might look at it and say, yeah, I'd give you 10 bucks for it. But the broader world says, oh, that's priceless. That's priceless. There's, there's no price you could put on that because it's so expensive. In one sense, that's what Jesus is saying. There's, there's no amount of money that's worth your soul. Yeah, it might feel good. It might live it up for a few years here on earth. But ultimately, it's not nearly as important as your own soul. The other way to take that statement is this. For what can a man give in return for his soul is how much money do you need to buy your way out of hell? It's the idea of, okay, if this is a transaction, God, how much do I owe you? So if I have the entire world and I had all the money in the world, how much do you need for me so I can settle this debt? Get out my checkbook. You want how much? Jesus is saying, no, the value of your life is far more than anything that this world can offer. And also, what this world can offer always falls short, falls short of what the cost is of your soul. It's kind of the positive and the negative look at it here. Jesus is saying that if you lose your life, you will save it because it is that valuable before God. And no matter how much money you may think you have or what you do or whatever kind of material blessing or standing that you have, it will all fall short. To cling to the things of this life, the things which we as humans naturally value most is the way to forfeit true life. Clinging to life itself is the ultimate example of this concern and is set in contrast with this acceptance of death for the right reason, right? We are not just lovers of death, but we're willing to give ourselves up for Christ. And Jesus himself is the greatest example of this. He willingly gave himself to save us. Have you ever held on to something so tightly? A material thing? One day we're going to be gone. And then what? What's going to be left behind? The phrase is, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? You can't take it with you. <laughs> you can't take it with you. No matter what you have, it doesn't go anywhere. Ezra likes the pyramids and things in Egypt and mummies, and he thinks they're cool right now. And, and we've watched a few YouTube videos and have a couple books, and, and you can see all the gold and the treasure that these pharaohs heaped up in their tombs because they thought whatever was in that tomb, they would get to carry into the afterlife. <sighs> Those pharaohs have learned now that it's not the case. We might think, oh, they're so foolish. <gasps> but how much different are we? We hold on to things. We don't think with an eternal perspective. We want what we want now, and we forget about how God might use something. What is his purpose? What is his plan? How can he use what I have now for his purposes? Whether it's a tool, 
whether it's your own time, whether it's money, whether it's some form of possession, material thing, whatever it is, are we willing to give it up for the cause of Christ? To understand that no matter what we hoard to ourselves, ultimately, we're not going to be able to take it with us. Do not cling to the things of this world, but rather forsake them. Do not be entrapped by them and be willing to give your very life for the cause of Christ. And the second consequence here, as we think of death and life and gain and profit and everything like that, is shame and acknowledgement. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We are not a shame-based culture. We are not a shame-based culture. You might think, what in the world does that mean? Uh, <laughs> our relationships are very much merit-based. So we can be viewed as individuals. Uh, what I do is separated from what somebody else does. It doesn't reflect in that way. Eastern cultures are different. They value shame and pride, you know, kind of the, the two opposites there. They value that very highly. And in the first century, in this Middle Eastern culture, bringing shame upon a family, bringing shame upon your name, even being shamed by the community was, in a sense, a death sentence of being cast out. Jesus here says, for whoever is ashamed of me, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, if you want to follow after me and you're willing to give of your life, that's fine. But you're not going to be able to sneak through. <laughs> Think of Peter. The night when Jesus was betrayed and taken to the Sanhedrin. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, never, Lord, never. Once again, Peter sticking his foot in his mouth. And Peter does. Three times denies Jesus. In a sense, Peter was ashamed of Jesus. Do you think Peter had these words rolling around in his mind? I bet he did. I'm ashamed of Jesus. And now Jesus is going to be ashamed of me when he comes back. The idea of giving recognition, of standing up and saying, I believe in Jesus. Are we clear that we are followers of Jesus? And not only Jesus, but I love what Jesus says there. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me, end of my words. So some people today will say, well, I love Jesus, but some of that teaching stuff, well, that just needs to be updated. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You cannot separate me from what I taught. So whether that's issues of homosexuality and marriage, the value of life and when life begins, of living a life that is set apart for Christ. You cannot divorce the man from the message for the living word is also the spoken word, the written word. If you say, well, I love Jesus, but not all those other things with Christianity, well, then you don't love Jesus. 
If you love Jesus, you love his bride. If you love Jesus, you love his word. If you love Jesus, you love his message. There's no just skirting underneath the radar. Are you ashamed of him? He will be ashamed of you. For the Son of Man, that phrase again is used, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The second coming, this is judgment. This is judgment. This is when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, some will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? And Jesus says, depart from me, for you never knew me, and I never knew you. Jesus will bring judgment for those who claim to follow him, but yet truly don't. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Will he be ashamed of us? Those who deny Jesus will be denied by him. It's really a simple principle, and it's a warning to us that we may want to follow Christ, but yet there may be times in our lives, because of our faith, we need to take a stand. I think that has been ramped up. Talked with several of you in different professions with issues in regard to religious liberty and freedom. Your faith had an impact on your job. Your faith might have a continuing impact in your job in how you relate to the world around you with relatives, right? What are the two things you never talk about at Thanksgiving? Politics and religion. <laughs> but I think more and more, those are the controlling things in our consciousness because it's a worldview. It's how are we going to live our lives? What's real? What's not? What's true? What's, what's false? Are we going to be ashamed of Jesus? Or are we going to stand bold, take up our cross, meaning whatever is involved, denying ourselves and following after him? And Jesus ends this section here with this odd statement, and it's just kind of tacked on here. Verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Why does Jesus include this and what does it mean? So there's lots of different ideas. Obviously, the statement is that some aren't going to die. There'll be some that endure until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So Jesus didn't return with all of his holy angels and his kingdom in full power yet. He still hasn't. And all those disciples have died. <laughs> is it talking about the fall of Rome in AD 70? Or the fall of the temple that same time? Is it uh, talking about other various things? We're not necessarily sure directly, but I think this explanation is the best. What is the next section here in chapter 9? You probably have a subheading. It says the transfiguration. The transfiguration is just a snippet, a foretaste, a little sampling of the coming kingdom of God. That foretaste. And there are three disciples who get a view of that. Peter, James, and John. They go up with Jesus and they witness Jesus in all of his glory with Elijah and Moses. And Peter's like, this is perfect. Let's build some tents. We're not going anywhere. And Jesus says, no, we have to go back down. I think this is what Jesus is referring to here. Seeing the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Getting a foretaste, getting a picture of all that is involved. And he's saying that there are some here who will be vindicated, who will have a small taste of what the end result is for all of those who 
follow after Jesus, deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow after him, the result is they will enjoy that power of the kingdom forever. Jesus is saying there are some here who are going to get a foretaste. And it's going to motivate. It's going to vindicate the suffering. This idea of reversal, of re- redemption, of, of the, the, the present agony and the future ecstasy. It's all throughout Scripture. Denying yourself now for what is to come. Giving up things now for what is to come. And we do that in our lives, right? We know something is hard, but the end result is worth it. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying life now is going to be difficult. There's going to be things that are going to be hard in following after me, but the end result is worth it. And those who glimpse just this kingdom of God that has come with power are vindicated. The small revelation of the power of the kingdom of God is a small sampling of what's to come for everybody who follows after Christ. It will be worth it. So after we think of all these things, denying self, taking up our cross, following after Christ, giving our lives, knowing that what we are giving, we cannot keep anyways, and not being ashamed of Christ. We like these verses in the theoretical realm, right? These are good verses. These are good verses to memorize. In the theoretical sense, we like this. But the difficulty comes in living it out, day in, day out. What does it mean? to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Denying self is most difficult in our everyday realm and roles that we occupy. Denying self to serve Jesus as husbands and fathers. Denying self to live as mothers and wives. Denying ourselves and living as children and teenagers. When you don't understand mom and dad and why they're asking you to do what you're being told to do, you're denying self and following Jesus when you obey them, kids. As employees, as employers, as church members, and as citizens of this nation, the call of the text is to understand what the conditions and consequences are of following after Jesus. Are we ashamed of Christ? Are we willing to lose our life? Ultimately, is life about you and I, or is it about Jesus? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I would encourage you this morning, give, 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 give what you cannot keep and hold fast to that which you cannot lose. And that is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Pray, Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. Thank you for the challenge and encouragement it is to me. Lord, my own life of denying self, of looking to you and following after you. Relationships and different roles that I have, Lord, help us. Help me. Help all of us to not live for ourselves, but to live for you. For That's what you call us to. That's what Christ did. He didn't even live for himself, God. He lived for you. He said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. This is the one we're called to follow. He knows, and he loves, and he grants mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you. For Christ. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in his name.